Theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. In this lecture, we come to part three, section four of the course. Uh, I continue my defense, promotion, promulgation, propagation of the uh, optimistic amillennialism I've talked to you about in uh, recent lectures. And in this lecture, we come to what I think is arguably, along with Matthew 16, uh, another great bulwark of such amil- uh, optimistic amillennialism, and that's Luke 13, 10 to 21. And there we have the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Few issues in eschatology are of more practical importance than the prospects of the church during the gospel age. One's views of this subject will profoundly influence one's attitudes, hopes, and efforts for the church. This is, however, not only a highly important subject, but of course it is a hotly disputed subject. Those who hold more negative views of the future prospects of the church during this age are called by some pessimillennialist. Those who hold more optimistic and positive views of the earthly prospects of the church are sometimes branded proper liberals and evolutionists. Well, perhaps the classic declaration, in my view, of the growth and progress of the church during this age is found in our Lord's parable of the mustard seed and the accompanying parable, both in Matthew and in uh, Luke, Um, the parable of the leaven. We want to consider Luke's account of this parable, and the reasons for that choice will become obvious as we proceed. We read there in Luke 13, 10 to 21, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her. Immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done. Therefore come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan is bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire multitude was rejoicing uh, uh, over all the glorious things being done by him. 
therefore. He was saying, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leaven. Luke 13, 10-21 contains one of three accounts of Jesus' telling of the parable of the mustard seed. The other two are found in Matthew 13, 31 and 32, and Mark 4, 30-32. Luke's account, uh, for reasons I'll give below, brings out, a peculiarly, brings out in a peculiarly clear light the idea of the growth, progress, advancement of the kingdom, which I think is taught by this parable as one of its major um, practical applications. But uh, I want to deal with this parable under, I think it's six or seven S's. We'll see. I can't remember. I think it's six. The subject of the parable, first of all, is obviously Jesus' purpose to enlighten his disciples further regarding the subject of the kingdom of God in this parable. Verse 18, therefore he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? We must therefore begin by considering what our Lord means by the kingdom of God. Now, great volumes of exegesis have been written upon this immensely important biblical theme. The evangelical theologian George Alvin Ladd spent most of his long ministry writing on the theme of the kingdom of God. And uh, I have in my uh, briefcase over there Herman Ritterboss's great book entitled The Coming of the Kingdom. Uh, thick book on the subject, but that's just a very minuscule part of the enormous literature that's been spawned by the subject of the kingdom of God. Uh, and <clears throat> it's necessary, however, in this lecture to explain its specific relevance here. And I will do this by giving a definition of the phrase and then explaining it in its four key parts. So first of all, what is the kingdom of God? Here's the definition. It's the long-prophesied reign of God, mightily present in the world through the word of God, producing sons of God, and intimately associated with the church of God, and ultimately revealed in the destruction of the wicked, the revelation in glory of the Redeemer, and the glory of a redeemed world and a redeemed race. So uh, let me open that up uh, under, uh, I think I said four, I think I have actually five here parts. First of all, uh, the coming of the kingdom is the thematic essence of Old Testament prophecy. And when we say it's long prophesied, we're not just saying that it's prophesied. It's really the thematic essence of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 52.7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Daniel 2.44 prophesies, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel 7.13 and 14 adds, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a sun of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So it's the long prophesied kingdom. It is the kingdom which means fundamentally, in the second place, the reign of God. The reign of God, R-E-I-G-N, for those of you who are listening to this on tape. Psalm 103, verse 19 declares, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his, New American Standard translates sovereignty, the Hebrew word is kingdom, rules over all. Now this text shows us that the term Kingdom in the Bible means most fundamentally reign of God. The kingdom is not in the first place a piece of real estate. It's not a piece of real estate that rules over all. The kingdom uh, is the royal power and authority of the king. That's why in the parallel Hebrew parallel phrase in the first part of the verse, what is parallel to kingdom is throne, throne. The word is often better translated than reign or sovereignty in the Bible. Sometimes it does designate a realm over which a king reigns. I'm not denying that. All I'm saying is that that idea of realm is a secondary and derivative meaning. The primary meaning of the word is, is sovereignty, reign, and is symbolized in the throne and not in a countryside. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is mightily present in the world through the word of God. Because the parable of the mustard seed is intimately connected with parables in both Matthew and Mark, which like in the kingdom of God to seed. And so when we read seed here, uh, and especially as it's intimately related, uh, surrounded by the parable of the wheat and weeds in uh, Matthew 13, preceded in Matthew 13 by the parable of the four soils. Uh, it is, And in those other parables, it's clear that whatever more the seed symbolizes, it symbolizes the word of the kingdom, the word of God. In those parables, then, the seed is identified as the word of God that produces sons of God, Uh, Note in Matthew 13, especially verses 19 and 38, and in Mark 4, verses 26 to 32. And I think it's worth taking the time in this context to look at that. Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. When anyone hears, this is the explanation of the seed in the parable of the sower, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Then again in verse 38, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. We say here it's the sons of the kingdom, before it was the word of the kingdom. But you see, it's the word of the kingdom planted in the hearts of men that create sons of the kingdom. It's no contrast, really. It's simply an expansion of the previous idea. If you look at Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, you'll see the same thing, I think. Uh, 
And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, verse 26. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, how himself does not know. Soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or what by what parable shall we present it? It is like mustard seed, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all seeds, that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its branches. Well, I think it's plain from these parallel passages that the whole notion of seed is the word of God in its fertile and its germinating power, which when it's planted in the hearts of men and grows there, creates sons of God. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we have, to, we have to say that the kingdom of God is mightily present in the world through the word of God, uh, creating sons of God, producing sons of God. The fourth part of this definition is that the kingdom, as we've already said, is not in the first place a realm over which God rules, but the reign of God himself. And it is wrong, therefore, when we come to think about the relationship of the kingdom of the church to put an equal sign between the two things. The kingdom does not, in Scripture, equal the church. and does not equal the church because, in the first place, the most fundamental meaning of kingdom is reign, not realm. The fact that God reigns and not that which over which he may be said to reign. So the church is not the reign of God even though it may be sometimes the realm over which God reigns. It is equally wrong, however, uh, uh, to fail to see that there's an intimate relationship between the kingdom of God and the church. This relation is pointedly manifest in the first and classic passage on the church in the New Testament, which we looked at the last hour, where the, uh, the Peter, described there as a little rock and... Uh, as in some sense the rock of the church is given the keys of the kingdom. In Matthew eighteen fifteen to 20, this relationship is underscored where the use of those keys is attributed to the local church. Thus, there's an intimate relation between the kingdom of God and the church, both in its universal dimension, Matthew 16, and its local dimension, Matthew 18. And finally, uh, the fifth part of this definition and so there are five parts. Why did I say four? Um, um, uh, five key parts. You want to correct that? I'm doing that right now. I can't stand it. Um, five key parts. Um, the fifth part of this definition appoints us to the eschatological uh, dimension what is still eschatological for us, future for us, dimension of this kingdom. Um, <clears throat> this kingdom is not only revealed presently in the church and in the preaching of the word of God, creating sons of God, but it will be revealed finally in the future in a new way that involves the judgment of the wicked, the return of the king, and the glory of his people in a redeemed earth. If you wish, you may see this by looking uh, at Matthew 13, 37, 37 to 43, which explains another parable of the kingdom, the parable 
of the tares or the wheat and weeds. When you look at that parable, as we have, one thing should be clear. The kingdom of God is not merely a vague ideal or a future reality. It's intimately associated with, it's operative in, the word of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, and the church which exercises the keys of the kingdom. All this means there's a direct application of the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven to the church and its future prospects in the gospel age because this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, all of that being said, we come to our second S, the symbolism of the parable. The symbolism of the parable. I don't intend to go into great detail here, but it's necessary to say something. The symbolism of the parable uh, is really based on things drawn uh, uh, from uh, common uh, things in agricultural Palestine. The smallest of the common garden seeds in first century Palestine was the mustard seed. This is why it is said in Matthew 13, 32, that it's smaller than all of the seeds. The context of what Jesus is saying is you went to that little hut or shed where they stored their garden seeds. You looked along the shelves and all the clay pots where they had all the different seeds. You looked inside all of those clay pots and once you'd compare it to all of those 10 or 12 different kinds of seeds they might have there, you would notice that one of those seeds was uh, comparatively much smaller than the rest, and that comparatively much smaller seed was uh, the mustard seed. The smallest of all garden seeds is then called in Matthew 13, 32, smaller than all other seeds. And this smallest seed was proverbial, on the other hand, uh, for its germinal power. It starts out in that little clay pot as the smallest of all the seeds, the least promising looking of all the seeds, and yet it was marked by the fact that it had a marvelous ability to grow and got taller and bigger than all the other seeds and all those other clay pots in the garden shed. Though at the beginning of the summer it was the smallest seed, yet by the end of the summer it would become vastly the largest of the garden plants, growing to heights of 8, 10, and even 15 feet. Thus it would come to visibly dominate the other plants in the garden. In the fall, when its branches became rigid, birds could even occasionally build nests in the mustard plant, which was, would now be, of course, the size of a small tree. All of that uh, is what's entailed there in the symbolism of the parable. And, and, and because it's drawn from things common in agricultural Palestine, the whole notion of the objection uh, that uh, it's not literally the smallest of all seeds in the world is based upon some sort of technical mania of liberals and not upon any or proper uh, proper criticism of what Jesus meant. But anyway, Roman numeral three, the substance of the parable. The substance of the parable. How precisely is the kingdom of God like a mustard seed? The matters that Jesus emphasizes in telling this parable indicate at least three respects in which the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. And I think these just kind of naturally fall out as you read, in, read into these parables from the context. First, the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed in that it appears as the smallest, weakest, and most insignificant of things at first. 
It is in the language of Matthew 13, 32 again, smaller than all other seeds. And so the kingdom of God is like that. It appears at first as the most insignificant of things. Second, it has a marvelous power to germinate, grow, and increase. See Luke 13, 19, and note the three durative present tenses there in Mark 4, 32. Let me go back there and show you how that... Uh, that is so clear. Mark 4.32, when it is sown, and then you have three te- present tenses. It grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, forms large branches. Uh, now, I think that the effect of those three present tenses is to kind of give us a, a, a grammatical time-lapse photography of the history of this plant. Okay, so, and, and so vividly, Mark puts it right before our eyes as growing up, uh, becoming uh, uh, larger than all the other garden plants. You see that happening in our time-lapse photography over the summer of the growing season. And then it forms large branches, and you can see the whole growth process taking place as if before your eyes with time-lapse photography. Well, <clears throat> this, 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 these three present tenses then have a durative effect, have a durative kind of connotation, and, and emphasize the whole idea of growth then. And so the kingdom of God is like that mustard seed in its power to grow, uh, to grow. Well, and then uh, it will finally dominate all the world. Now this is emphasized uh, by the reference to the birds of the air in Luke thirteen nineteen, and the parallel passages. This is an allusion to, perhaps an even, even a quotation of two Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 17, 22 to 20, 24, and Daniel 4, 21 and 22. And let's look at those passages. I want you to see this. Ezekiel 17, first of all. <laughs> Uh, here we have a, a figurative, uh, a long figurative uh, passage uh, that is kind of parabolic, very similar to the Lord's parables in Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from, I'll pluck from the top most of its young twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. Here the birds of every kind nesting in the branches of this, what was once a sprig, a young twig, uh, speaks of the growth and finally the domination of this stately cedar over the trees of the field. And if that's not clear enough in Ezekiel, it certainly becomes clear in the similar use of this imagery in Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4. Um. And here it's verses 21 and 22 
that are relevant. Uh, beginning with verse 20, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the air of the sky lodge. It is you, or king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great, reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. So here you have a clear explanation of what the birds of the air symbolize. They, they symbolize the nations of the world coming under the dominion of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And when similar imagery is used here of the kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing. Uh, finally, the kingdom of heaven that had appeared at first as the smallest of all scenes exercises universal dominion over the nations of the world. <clears throat> so in both of these passages, then, the birds of the air symbolize the nations of the world as they find rest under the authority of a great kingdom. Thus Jesus is asserting that the knowledge of the Lord proclaimed in the gospel of the kingdom will one day come to rule the world. Thus the prophecy of Isaiah 11.9 will be fulfilled uh, <clears throat> where it reads uh, through the gospel, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I, I think, uh, read in its most natural, easy, straightforward sense, there's no really real uncertainty about uh, these three points that we have grasped uh, here. The, this is the heart of the analogy between the mustard seed and the kingdom of God. But if further, com, uh, if further confirmation is needed, we have it when we examine our next point. And there we come to the setting of the parable. And this is why uh, I've chosen Luke 13 and its setting, because it just makes this point so beautifully. There is a pointed connection between the parable of the mustard seed and its context or setting in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 18 begins, according to the New American Standard Bible, therefore he was saying. Uh, now, according to Luke, the incident then in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath was the telling background and the fitting introduction and the significant clue to the meaning of the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom appeared that day in the synagogue as the smallest, weakest, and most insignificant of things. It is, says uh, the Gospels, in that way, smaller than all other seeds. Nothing could have seemed more insignificant ordinary and unimpressive than the appearance that Sabbath morning of the young Jewish carpenter turned rabbi from Galilee of the Gentiles. Nothing could have seemed less like the entourage of the coming kingdom than the motley bond band of followers who came with him that day to the synagogue. Not angels coming from heaven in burning fire, but uh, ordinary fishermen, and tax collectors, and other things uh, of even worse uh, uh, or uh, aroma accompanying 
Jesus that day into the synagogue. Yet this mustard seed in the synagogue that day manifests a marvelous power to germinate, grow, and increase. The word of the kingdom in the mouth of Jesus manifests this unseen and unseen potential to liberate those in bondage, uh, untwisting the woman bent over for so many years, to humiliate those in opposition, because when the synagogue official objects, Jesus' words put him in his place. And doing so, uh, the the same word of the kingdom greatly encourages his friends. They rejoice at Jesus' power and and also his suppression of the objections of the opponent. And this power, says Jesus, will finally dominate all the world. The unseen power of this motley-looking band of followers and this uh, motley-looking supposed king will finally dominate all the world. And I think this is the point of the therefore at the beginning of verse 18. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus is asserting to his followers followers, that what they have just seen is characteristic and will be characteristic of the kingdom of God as a whole to the end of time. It will always come as the smallest of all seeds in insignificance. It will always manifest this this unseen power to germinate and grow, and one day, one day, uh, that that, uh, power which is manifested throughout this age will come to rule the world. Finally, says Jesus, the message I preach, uh, the word of God, I myself and my despised followers will rule the world. I think that, and nothing less than that, is the astounding assertion of Jesus of Nazareth in the parable of the mustard seed. Now, um, uh, we go on then to our fifth S, the substantiation of the parable. The substantiation of the parable. So with regard to the substantiation of the parable, what I'm really after here, what I want to substantiate, in other words, is the whole emphasis on growth. Growth. Uh, and there are those, no matter how clear it may seem to us from what I've emphasized already today, there are, there are those that deny that there's any emphasis on, on growth here. Yes, they say, what there is in the parable is an, uh, is an emphasis on the difference between the small beginnings and the great ending of the kingdom. But uh, the notion of this growth uh, that uh, we think we see here, well, that's a mirage. We're not actually seeing it. And that is the view of no one less than George Alden Ladd. Ladd limits the meaning of the parable to the contrast between the small beginning of the kingdom and its grand consummation and rejects the thought that the process or growth of the kingdom is taught in it. He suggests that the idea um, uh, of process introduced here actually implies the idea of evolution. The idea of growth, however, 
in my view, does not imply the theory of evolution, and neither does it demand, as I'll say under a later point, post-millennialism. Uh, there may be progress without post-millennialism. There may be growth without evolution in the uh, sense that, uh, the pejorative sense that Ladd is using the word. Uh, the framework of seed, time, and harvest present in many of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 suggest and illustrates the idea of maturation. And, uh, and so the notion of maturation is not foreign to the world as God has made it. God put the idea of maturation in many different respects into his world. It's not evolution, then, in the bad sense, nor do I think it implies what is ordinarily thought of as post-millennialism. Uh, that, and so it's noteworthy that such a process of maturation, uh, and here's where I think I want to uh, make, a, make a point that Ladd was interested in making as well, such a process of maturation by itself would never bring harvest. You can have seed time, uh, the, the planting of the seed by the farmer, and you can have maturation, right, growth, but, but uh, maturation never brings by itself harvest. There has to be the intervention of the farmer, the intervention of the harvester to bring actual harvest. And so I'm, I'm arguing, and I will argue, that the notion of, uh, of the kingdom of God here includes all three things. Uh, it includes the notion of uh, the small beginning, the growth or maturation of the seed, and then the notion of the intervention of, of the harvester at the end of the age. Uh, and so um, evolutionary theory has no place here. Uh, uh, the preaching and growth of the word of God by itself, producing the final kingdom, has no place here in the sense that liberals have taught that, though uh, the direct activity of, of God and his word of power is what brings both growth and harvest. It is not a natural or imminent process of evolution, but an action of the transcendent God through his word that brings the advancement and triumph of the kingdom of God. All right, let's take a, a few minutes, a break, and then I'll come back to give you the guts of what I want to say here by way of defending the idea of growth in the parable of the mustard seed. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.